Well, it is a privilege just to be amongst God's people, but it's also a privilege to be able to be up here and proclaim his word to you as well. Our passage tonight is in the book of Philippians. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And invite you to turn there with me now, please. But Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll pray, and then I will introduce and read our text. Let's go to God tonight. Lord, as, uh, as always, we can do nothing apart from you. We pray, Lord, that you would open up all of our hearts and minds, Lord, to behold wonderful things out of your word, that you would guard my lips and mine, Lord, as I proclaim tonight's word. And, Lord, I pray that you would let it find fertile ground amongst River City Grace tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I read our passage, I want to have you imagine a scenario. Just imagine a scenario. And in this scenario, what we're imagining is that tomorrow, our local government, wherever you live, city and county, decided they've kind of had enough of this whole Christian church thing. They have decided, our local elected leaders, whether that's boards of supervisors or city councils, mayors, etc., they've decided that they're just tired of Christianity in their jurisdiction. You people are just just an annoyance. Got to get rid of you. Get them out of town. And so there is an active persecution that begins tomorrow. Now, worse than that, your state and federal government officials, they, they don't necessarily join in, but they're more than happy to let the locals do their thing, and so they turn a blind eye to what the locals are doing. And so now you find yourself actively persecuted. Uh, you find you know, uh, uh, harassment, police visits, difficulty doing business, those sorts of things attacks your neighbors, people you've annoyed preaching the gospel for years, have, have now have a, have, a, have a license to be able to sort of jump in without any sort of reprisal or, or punishment. And so there's an active persecution going on. And you have no way, no legitimate governmental means to address this violation of your rights. You can't sue in court. They don't want to listen to it. The governor is not going to send in the CHP to protect you. The, the, the president's not going to send in the army you, we, are on our own. Now, in that scenario, imagine that scenario. In that scenario, what would you want life at River City Grace to look like? What would you need body life at this church to look like, to be able to weather that sort of situation? Assuming you didn't choose to simply flee, what would you need River City Grace to look like? And I think in our text tonight, Paul answers that question. Paul's answer to that question is chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And Paul says there, so if, and maybe it's better to read to the extent that, to the extent there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is, in fact, Paul's answer to that question of what body life ought to look like in the context of persecution. 
And if it's not immediately clear that he's answering that question, I would point out that he begins with the word so in the ESV, or if you got the NASB, it would be therefore. That's hearkening back to what Paul had just said at the end of chapter 1, specifically, I think, verse 27, where he tells this church to live worthy of the gospel by standing united as they face persecution for the gospel. So when we get to our passage tonight, Paul is continuing on that theme. He's essentially restating and expanding what he said in verse 27. He's given the church instructions on how to live worthy of the gospel in light of persecution. We could legitimately summarize our text tonight as instructions for how the church ought to behave when under attack. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. If I were to, well, I'm going to, I'm going to break this up into two sections. The first section we're going to look at is actually going to be verses 2 to 4, verses 2 to 4. That's the command, that's the imperative, that's where Paul tells us what to do. Um, And we're going to call that section the requirement of Christian unity. Verses 2 to 4, the requirement of Christian unity. But then we're going to circle back to verse 1, and we're going to see Paul give us five gospel motives, five gospel motives that empower that unity, five gospel motives for unity. And so that's how we're going to divide up our text tonight, verses 2 to 4 and the requirement of unity, and then verse 1, the five gospel motives for our unity. Now, as, I, as we do this, though, I do want to make one quick disclaimer. I just said that this is a... Uh, a text that summarizes how the church ought to behave during an attack. But this is not limited to the context of persecution. Uh, I think we'd be doing an injustice to the text to say this only applies when the church is being persecuted. This is not a passage that we put under glass, and when the church gets attacked, we break the glass and say this is how we're supposed to live. This is essentially meant to be what the church is to look look like at all times. It's just especially important in the context of persecution. Uh, An analogy would be if I'm uh, driving on the freeway, a four-lane freeway, it is illegal and stupid for me to swerve radically across all four lanes of traffic. It's a bad idea. It is necessary for my health, my insurance, my financial well-being, conscience sake, to not do that. But it is especially important that I don't do that when I've got four CHP officers behind me. Always don't do it, especially don't do it when you've got the cops behind you. In the same way, this is a general requirement for the church that is especially important in the context of persecution. And that's what Paul is getting at here, how the church ought to function, especially in the context of persecution. But with that disclaimer in mind, knowing that this applies in in all situations, but especially in the context of persecution, let's jump in and examine exactly what it is that Paul commands this church and us to do. So look at, look at verse 2 with me. Paul begins there by saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That is actually the only technical command in this passage. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That is the one imperative that Paul gives. He wants this church to be on the exact same page. He wants them to have one mindset. There is to be no daylight in the thinking and perspectives of the individual members of this church. He's looking for uniformity. And what follows in the rest of verse 2 and 3 and 4 are explanations as to what that one mind ought to look like. These are the things that we're supposed to be on the same page about. These are the things that Paul wants each person to fully adopt. And we can quickly summarize those. We can say that Paul um, wants the church at Philippi, the Spirit wants us at River City Grace, to be all focused together on love, on gospel purpose, on selflessness, and on humility. 
That's a fair summary of what Paul says in verses 2 to 4. We are to be all focused together, no daylight, one mind, on love, on gospel purpose, on selflessness, and humility. Paul's saying that every single person in the church ought to be ought, ought, ought to be marked by these things and ought to be making it their aim to excel still more every day at them. All of us should be focused together on love, gospel purpose, selflessness, and humility. And while that's pretty straightforward to understand, let's be really clear. This is a high bar. This is a high bar that Paul is painting for us. The danger of quickly summarizing it like I did, it, it kind of feels like you dumb it down a little bit. But if we go through each of these explanations, each of these things that Paul wants us to be on the same mind or same page about, it's pretty clear this is a very, very high bar for our sinful hearts. We are first and foremost to have a Christ-like love for one another. Paul also says that we're to be in full accord and of one mind. This is a profound level of agreement that we're being called here to. The, uh, one commentator said this is, this, this is like having clocks that strike at the exact same moment. This is a, us being in perfect sync with one another. This is, this is no infighting, no confusion, no disagreements. This is a radical unity. Think about how much work that takes. Think about how much effort goes into doing that. Think about how much patience with one another that requires, how much empathy, how much willingness to listen, willingness to be wrong, how much proactive teaching and instruction that sort of thing takes. This is not a, yeah, we're all generally aligned. This is a, a profound unity that we have together. We are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, in humility, we are to count others more significant than ourselves. And then he goes on to say, we're also not to look out to our own interests, but also the interests of others. That is profoundly unnatural for our sinful hearts. That is profoundly the opposite of how we would normally want things to be if left to our own devices, if left to our own sin. It is the opposite of our natural state. And this is especially difficult in the context of persecution when jobs or food or houses or whatever else are being taken away. I don't just get to make sure that me and mine are being taken care of. I have to actively make sure that each one of you is taken care of as well. I have to prioritize you. I have to think of you as more important than myself. You know what happens when there's scarcity? That's when selfishness and pride bleed out. That's when we rationalize our own self-importance and our needs over others. And Paul's saying, no, you don't get to do that ever, and you especially don't get to do that in the context of persecution. Those are not options for believers. I was, uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of an analogy for this, and the, honestly, the very, very first one, real talk, the very first one that came to mind was our church potlucks. And it's a silly analogy, but I think it's, it's wonderfully illustrative because every single time, without fail, without fail, that there's a church potluck and the food is lined out there and we exit from this room over there, without fail, I immediately have to tamp down in my heart a desire to be the first person to get the food and to take as much food as I want. The rest of you, the rest of you can fend for yourself. I have to fight that. And the silly thing about it is I don't lack options, right? There's nothing shackling me here. I could, I could leave, get my own food. I can go home. I could, I could sit there and you know, door dash whatever I wanted. I don't have to eat the food, and yet my sinful heart says, me first, every single time. Think about, that, that's, that's our natural state. That is, that, is, that is who we are apart from Christ. That's what our hearts 
naturally gravitate to, and we are being called to the opposite of that, even especially in the context of scarcity, of lack, persecution. This is not a, a low bar. This is a very high bar, and this is hard. But pausing for a second, just imagine what this would actually look like in practice. Just imagine how beautiful a picture of a church this would be if this was lived out. The consequence of this sort of like-mindedness would be a church living in a remarkable fellowship and unity, wouldn't it? It's the sort of unity that would have no worldly, earthly parallel or source. It's the sort of unity that would give the watching world pause, the persecuting world pause. It's the sort of unity that would make the persecuting world ashamed of what it was doing. This would look like an Acts 2 type unity and fellowship, the type where believers are sharing their possessions and wealth freely with each other. What we're being called to here is a humble, sacrificing, serving love that results in a profound and remarkable fellowship and unity. And in persecution, that's what you need. Going back to that scenario and that question I, I, I painted at the beginning, that's what we would need from each other. That's how churches survive. That's how we survive. That's how the gospel is honored, both in persecution and on the regular. And, and again, whether it, whether it is persecution, whether it's just a, a rather a Tuesday, we are called to this sort of humble, sacrificing, self-serving, I'm sorry, some humble, sacrificing, serving love that results in this remarkable unity. And because this is a high bar, because this is something that is so unnatural for us by nature, it does naturally beg the question of how. How is it that we do this? How do we pursue this? If it's unnatural from a worldly perspective, how do we succeed in this sort of unity? And that brings us to verse 1 and those five gospel motives. And I'm going to spend the majority of our time focusing on those tonight, partly because I think the command here is relatively straightforward, and the gospel motives are especially important to go through because they spur us to this sort of unity, but also because I don't have all the time in the world. I want to be invited back again in the future. So <laughs> got to make some editorializing decisions here. But these five gospel motives, they are, they are, Paul says them quickly, but they are rich and they are deep and they are beautiful. And each one of them is, is worthy of a sermon by itself. But if you go back to verse one, we look at verse one. Again, Paul gives us these, this motivating power that spurs and empowers our obedience. And he gives us these, these five gospel motives, specifically encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection, and sympathy. These are the five gospel motives that inspire and cause the sort of unity that is being commanded here. And I want to emphasize that point. These are the gospel motives that inspire and cause and empower Christian unity. The type of unity that Paul is talking about here is not found in natural relationships. It's not found in similar life situations. It's not found in family, the fires of conflict, or anything else that binds human beings together. Those things can be helpful, but they cannot result in the type of fellowship, unity, humble, selfless, sacrificing love that Paul is talking about here. Our unity has a gospel-centered source that enables what we need to do. And if we want to achieve this sort of unity, it is these gospel motives that help us live worthy of Christ in his gospel. 
And that is a good segue into our very first gospel motive, which is encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. Now, this particular gospel motive, uh, the word encouragement here is often translated ex- exhort, exhort. Um, it's it's uh, to encourage or to urge someone to do something. And I think a picture is, uh, is, is like a race. You know, if you're a runner and you're doing a, a track race, let's say you're running a mile, four laps, you generally have a coach or a spouse or friends or somebody cheering you on. And on that last lap, when it really matters, they're usually yelling at you. They're not, they're not, they're not saying, you know, uh, uh, nice comforting things. They're usually yelling, like, hard words at you. Go, don't give up, finish, finish strong, commands. And what they're aiming at is, is to sort of shake you. They're aiming at making you, you know, feel reinvigorated and, and to put that effort into the last lap. That's what this word is ultimately aiming at here. Paul has in mind is that that feeling that runner gets when he hears those words is, is enabled, strengthened, empowered to finish strong. And he, he expects, he's saying, that believers are to be encouraged by Christ himself. And this does not refer to something that Christ is doing supernaturally behind the scenes, sovereignly in us. That's not really what Paul has in mind. It's Jesus himself. He doesn't say uh, uh, encouragement from Christ or through Christ. This is encouragement in Christ. The encouragement that we have is to be found in Christ himself. And I think what Paul has in mind here is the strengthening effect in our wills produced when a Christian reflects on the perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we remember, when we meditate on what Jesus has done for us, how and at what cost, we're provided with the the internal encouragement that we need to boldly live for him. Looking at Christ fuels our obedience is a much simpler way of saying that. Looking at Christ fuels our obedience. And we just sort of think about it at a high level for a second. His perfect life, it shows us the, the beauty of righteousness and the glory of a clean or clear conscience. It encourages us, gives us that strength to obey when we are weak, when we look at him in the desert, weak and tempted by Satan. It encourages us to obey even when we face opposition from our friends or families or neighbors, when we observe him as he's challenged and mocked and persecuted literally at every turn. And it encourages us to obey even when it's hard, even when it's costly, as we look at Jesus when he faced the prospect of going to the cross and even shed uh, sweated tears of blood at Gethsemane. When we look at his death, which is the ultimate act of obedience and the ultimate sacrifice, it encourages a sort of hatred and fear of sin as it shows the terrible cost of doing evil and the horror of God's righteous judgment for it. And it is the fount of our repentance. No believer should ever be able to look at our bleeding, bleeding, dying Lord, to quote one song, and then freely turn back to the things for which he died. We should not be able to reflect on the cross and its horrible necessity and then happily return to lust and pride and idolatry without something being very, very wrong. Observing Jesus' perfect life and his death fuels our desire to put off the things for which he died and to follow his example. 
And his resurrection gives us hope. That was much of what Greg preached about this morning. It demonstrates that, th that there's more than this life. It demonstrates that we have something to look forward to, something that is better and higher than anything this world can offer us, something that is greater than any temporary and passing pleasure from sin, to quote Hebrews 11. By looking at Jesus' death, life, and resurrection, we are encouraged, exhorted, strengthened to follow in our Lord's footsteps in living a life of obedience to God. And in fact, Paul, immediately after our passage, does this. In verse 5 and through you know, roughly uh, verse 11, in a passage that most of us have read a million times, that our kids in this church memorize as part of uh, co-op, uh, for those who, who, who participate in that, there is, this is the passage where we are exhorted to look at Christ's example, his humility, his not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but, but humbling himself. Paul is pointing us to Jesus and what he did in his attitude as both an example and as a motivation. We are to look at what Jesus did. We are to be encouraged and strengthened to follow his mindset and in his footsteps. Paul gives us literally an example of exactly what encouragement in Christ means right after our passage. We are meant, and I think Paul shows us how to do it, we are meant to reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, and as we do, be strengthened to try to live up to the example that our Lord and Savior set for us, however imperfectly. Reflecting on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus emboldens in our hearts his disciples to try hard to live worthy of him. So that's why encouragement in Christ is what it means, and that's why it's the first gospel motive for unity. Now, our second gospel motive for unity is the comfort from love, the comfort from love. And the word comfort here, it actually can also mean encouragement. It can mean the exact same thing as the first, our first word. It can also have the sense of consolation, the, the feeling that someone sad gets after, you know, when they're hugged, um, that sort of like feeling of comfort or rest. And I think what Paul means is somewhere in between it. It's the it, he's using this word to, to describe the peace we feel when we realize that we're loved. Uh, I hope you know what that means. When, when, when someone you want to love you expresses their love for you, there is a certain comfort, rest, peace, joy that comes from that. That's the sense here. Now, but notice Paul doesn't really qualify whose love it is. Um, and there's a bunch of different interpretations, uh, possibilities um, as to whose love is in view. Some commentators want to make this the Father's love and kind of read into it a Trinitarian sense. Others read into this and think it's, it's our love for each other that's meant to be comforting. But I, I think what Paul has in mind here is actually Jesus's, Jesus's love. If these are gospel motives, if this is all what it means to sort of live worthy of the gospel, and the first gospel motive is in the encouragement from Jesus' example. I think Paul has in mind the love that Jesus had for his sheep that caused him to die for us in the first place. If Paul wants us to reflect in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and be encouraged to follow his example, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that Paul's expecting us to reflect on the undeserved love that motivated Christ to live, die, and be raised for us. In fact, it's probably inconceivable to Paul that we'd meditate on what Jesus did and separate that from why he did it. And so I think this comfort from love is the love of Jesus for his sheep, which was ultimately displayed in its fullest measure on the cross. That's our second gospel motive for unity, is the love that Jesus had for his sheep that is ultimately displayed in fullest measure on the cross. And if you just think about that for, for half a second, to know that 
God took on humanity, suffered the indignities of the human experience, put himself under the authority of frail, fallible, sinful human parents and government, subjected himself to temptation by Satan, and then bore up under the physical suffering, mocking, violence, and even murder because he loves you. That's the essence of comfort, isn't it? To know that our Lord, who hates the least sin, who has never had the least sinful thought or impulse, allowed himself to have countless sins, countless acts of rebellion laid on him, and to suffer separation and the unfathomable wrath of God because he loves you, that is the ultimate source of comfort, isn't it? Those things are peace. Those things are rest. Those things are the ultimate security blanket. Because the love that does those things, the love that bears all of that when we were still hateful, hating rebels, when we were, as Paul says in Ephesians, by nature objects of wrath, the love that does that for us when we were like that cannot help but give us everything and anything we need now that we're forgiven, adopted, regenerated, justified. Understanding the greatness of Jesus' love sparks rest and joy and peace no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, and that love on display in the life and death of Jesus is our joy. And experiencing, experiencing that and living with that glorious security blanket, we are encouraged to live in loving unity with one another, aren't we? So we have the, the, the example of Christ that we look to, and in seeing his example, we are strengthened, emboldened to follow that example, and it is his love that motivated that that gives us comfort to also follow him and live in unity with one another. Those are our first two first two gospel motives. Now when we get to our third gospel motive, which the ESV renders as participation in the spirit, I'm going to quibble with that a little bit. I think, I think that version gets it wrong. If you had the NASB, it would translate it as the fellowship of the spirit. Um, and, and in fairness, the, that word can mean participation or sharing, but its, it's regular default meaning is, is more, more in the fellowship camp. It, it really means the close association or relationship between two parties. And what Paul has in mind here is the intimate, personal, and individual experience of relationship with God through the third person of the Trinity. As one trusted source says, it's, it's best to think of this as fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship with the Spirit. And as believers, the, the fellowship with the Spirit is something that we have that no one else does. It is a fruit of the gospel. It is something that we only have in the context of being regenerated, justified, and adopted. No unbeliever has any sort of relationship like this. In fact, they have no interpersonal relationship with God at all. In fact, before we came to saving faith in Christ, we did everything possible to avoid having any sort of actual relationship with God. We were estranged from him. We were separate. We were other. We knew who he was. But Romans 1 tells us that we suppressed that truth. We denied it. We rejected him. And we replaced him with gods of our own making. If anyone came from a religion before coming to Christ, um, other than, you know, if, if you weren't an atheist, you came from another religion, you, you, did, you did that literally. You replaced him with some other god. But we all chased after the idols of money, sex, comfort, pride, position, whatever else. I've been, I've been reading uh, the book of Jeremiah uh, lately, and if you want to have some graphic, above PG-13 descriptions of what we're talking about here, go read that book. There's a PG version in chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, where Jeremiah says, or God says, 
Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the picture here. We didn't just have no relationship with God. We actively avoided one. We rejected him and we replaced him with something else. That is what we were. We were rebels who hated him, who rejected him, who replaced him with pathetic, impotent alternatives in an attempt to get the joy and purpose that a human being can only have in the context of a personal relationship with God. But now, for those in Christ, all that's changed. Our rebellion against him has ceased. His wrath against us has been removed. We are now counted as righteous in him. We've been adopted by him as his sons and his daughters. And we now have the ability and the privilege of having a real personal relationship with God, the, the sort that we were always meant to have until sin in the garden ruined it. We now get to experience the original intent of God in creation. We get to have the sort of relationship with God that we see in the Psalms, the sort of intense, personal, fulfilling relationship. That is the birthright of every Christian, and the Spirit is the one that facilitates that. I, I, I made a list of, of, of what I think are examples of that. I'm, I'm going to struggle, I think, to articulate this precisely, but I hope this gives you the sense for it. But when we, when we have that, that sensation, that feeling of God being near to us, when we feel that he's not far away or some abstract thing, when we experience his presence, that, that's the spirit. When, when worship is sweet and we feel like we're singing directly before our Father in heaven, that's the spirit. When we're in the word and we see the Lord more clearly, we see him in his beauty and his glory more fully, that's the spirit, that's the context, that's the, the fellowship of the spirit. When we're, when we're grieved and wounded because we've sinned and, and, and we have not just an intellectual reminder that God is merciful and forgiving and the, the, the tally box is cleared, but we know that he forgives us as a father forgives his children. That's the spirit. That's the spirit working in us. This fellowship of the spirit, this third gospel motive, refers to the intimate, personal, and individual experience of relationship with God through the third person of the Trinity. And this sort of fellowship, this experience of God through the spirit, it, it, it also drives us to unity with, our, with a body of believers. And does it, I think, in at least three different ways. First, enjoying this sort of fellowship with God makes us want to live in harmony with other members of his body. If we're enjoying that fellowship with God, it just naturally sort of leads over to us wanting to live in that same sort of experience and relationship with other members of his body. Second, that sort of fellowship facilitates these sorts of commands in verses 2 through 4 because we... When we experience this sort of intimate personal relationship with God, it reorients our entire world. It puts everything in proper perspective. This morning, Matt read Psalm 73. And one of the, the, the verses in there is, nothing on earth I desire besides you. It's the psalmist talking about God. That perspective allows for the sort of selflessness and the humility that Paul's talking about here. Having that experience of God, that, that, that relationship with him, where, where he is our everything, reorients our world so that we can be humble, selfless, loving, giving. And third, when we experience this sort of fellowship with God, it should also uh, drive us to avoid dishonoring that relationship by living in selfish, independent 
and unloving ways. And those are, those are three, I imagine, out of, out of 50 uh, ways in which this, this third gospel motive for unity, the fellowship of the Spirit, drives us to the sort of humble, sacrificial, selfless love that Paul's talking about in verses 2 to 4. Now, as we look at our last two, affection and sympathy, I am going to um, lump them together, and I am going to advocate them being viewed as an aspect of the fellowship of the Spirit. I think Paul intends for us to read these as part uh, in the context of the fellowship of the Spirit. And to be fair, it's possible to read them as separate things, um, but there's a couple of things in the text that make me think that these are bound up with the fellowship of the Spirit. First and foremost, they're the only ones in the passage that don't have any qualifiers. It's encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, fellowship with the Spirit, and just affection and sympathy. So they kind of stand alone as, as, as separate units. Um, they are, every other the, other, the first three gospel motives are preceded by the word any. Any comfort in Christ, or any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit in the, in the ESV. These ones share in any any affection and sympathy. So they're, they're clearly meant to be read as a group. So they're, they're different, they're, they're somehow related with one another, and they kind of beg the question, right? Well, who's, who's affection? Whose sympathy are we talking about here? The word affection that Paul uses is just like the English word. It, it means warm feelings, loving feelings for someone. Sympathy really has the, the sense of pity or mercy. And so that probably isn't you know our pity and our mercy on each other. This probably refers to, to God's uh, uh, affection and his sympathy from us. And so I think when you, it's best to read these as part of that relationship with the Spirit. As we have that personal, intense relationship with God, we, ex- we feel his affection for us and we experience his sympathy, his mercy. It's the, it's, it's the sweet experience of feeling the affection that God has for us, however imperfectly through the Spirit. And again, when we, when we sin, when we err, it's that, that, that knowing deep abiding knowing that God has you know, loves us and forgives us and, and is coming to us as the prodigal father, or the, sorry, the father ran to the prodigal son. That's what I think Paul is talking about here when he talks about the affection and sympathy. And I, I hope that makes sense. I hope all of this talk about having a relationship with God, a personal intense relationship with God through the Holy Spirit makes sense. I hope this is an experience that every single person in this room who names the name of Christ knows exactly what I'm talking about. And if it feels foreign, let's talk about it afterwards, please, because we're meant to have this sort of experience. Christianity is not meant to be intellectual only. It's meant to be lived emotionally and experientially, too. Our relationship with God touches our entire being. It's not just our wills or our minds. If all we know is propositions about God, something's wrong. Something is wrong. We are meant to live our Christian lives with this sort of loving, sympathetic experience with God, and it also drives us to love, to selflessness, and humility. If I were to ask myself, when is it that I feel most like loving all of you, it's immediately after knowing and experiencing God's love for me. If I were to ask myself, when am I more likely to esteem you more highly than myself or more highly than you deserve, it's right after I experience God treating me with the mercy that I don't deserve. These things drive us to this sort of loving, humble selflessness that Paul is calling us to, that the Spirit is calling us to in verses 2 to 4. That's why affection and sympathy are the fourth and fifth gospel motives for unity. 
And taken together, these five gospel motives, they, they empower us to love, to, to live a humble, selfless fellowship that we're called to in verses 2 to 4. Now, we could say a lot more about these verses. We could spend a lot of time talking about the voluminous application points in verses 2 to 4. We could talk about some of the things that I glossed over. For example, Paul is sitting in prison, and he says, make my joy complete by, by living worthy of the gospel. We could talk about the heart that is required to say that, and we could ask ourselves if we have that same heart, if we would have that same heart. There's a, there's a lot in this passage that we have kind of have to gloss over, that we've just only scratched the surface of. But I'm, I am going to have to conclude, and as we conclude, I just want to give one basic point of application, is that these commands that we talked about, verses 2 to 4, they're straightforward, they're hard, but they're straightforward. And I hope we, having kind of walked through verse 1 rather quickly, I hope that we understand the motives that empower that command. I hope they're clearer than they would have otherwise been. But it is worth noting that that motivation still takes work on our part. It still takes work on our part. Gospel motives three through five, the fellowship of the spirit, uh, the experience of his affection and his sympathy, they speak to a relationship. And just like any human relationship, you kind of get what you put out of it. Or you get out of it what you put in. Yeah, it's better. You get out of it what you put in. And the first two gospel motives, the encouragement in Christ and the comfort from his love, that presumes that we are reflecting on the gospel regularly. There's a presumption that the gospel is top of mind here. There's a presumption that we are living gospel-centric, gospel-informed lives. There's a presumption that the gospel is not something that we believed and then moved beyond in some way, shape, or form. There's a presumption that the gospel was central to my thinking yesterday, it's central to my thinking today, and it's central to my thinking tomorrow for however many tomorrows I might be given. So as we conclude tonight, as we hopefully resolve to seek the sort of loving fellowship and unity that we're called to, as we hopefully understand the sorts of things that empower that sort of fellowship and unity, may we be encouraged to start that by keeping the gospel central to our thinking so that we can be encouraged and comforted by it. Let's pray. Lord, this is a high bar that you have set for us, the the, the, the knowledge of, of what a congregation ought to look like in practice, Lord. I am encouraged personally by the love that we have for one another at this particular church, Lord, but obviously, Lord, we all can, can, can repent and, and excel still more. We need your grace, Lord, to live up to this standard. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who are robust in our experience of relationship with you through the spirit i pray that you would make us a people for whom the gospel is central at all times that we might be encouraged in christ and his example that we might be comforted by his love and that between those things lord that we might be a people who love one another deeply who sacrifice for one another deeply who esteem others higher than ourselves lord and that we live in the sort of radical harmony that can only give the world pause and, and make them ask, what is going on here? May we live worthy of the gospel this week, this month, this year, Lord, by doing these things. In Jesus' name, amen.